Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. friendship made me realize when I was hit with him you see I could come alive again and I was laughing again I didn't have to be in control so if we met to discuss something we were running a street party and then we went for a walk or he said let's just have a drink in the pub or something that's as if I could get someone to sit with Jack suddenly it wasn't me making all the decisions and I I suddenly came alive again because I think what happens when the person you're living with is dying inside their body is as they die you die as your dear one's life gets narrower and narrower, your life gets narrower and narrower because all your energy is used in, in, in just nursing them and washing them and cooking for them and dealing with dramas and dealing with nurses and all the rest of it. And suddenly I was with somebody and I was a, a person again and there was someone to talk to about everything. And that's how slowly this relationship, which utterly took me by surprise, began to develop into something else. Human weakness in all its variety is the only subject there is. The provocative words of British screenwriter, playwright and novelist Hannah Qureshi. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Okay, here's a question for you. Is there such a thing as a perfect novel? Well, tonight in Talking Books, we're going to unpack that question with Dr Nick Bentley from Keele University and focus on one British novelist that does a pretty good job, The Bud of Suburbia by Hanif Qureshi. And what does it take to live life on two levels? Journalist, writer and social activist Rebecca de Santage discusses her courageous memoir, One Yellow Door, published by Dartman, Longman and Todd. I actually began to write it, well, about six years after his death. I had kept a journal during the last 18 months because I'd, I'd sought um, help from a psychologist to help me with the very peculiar sort of grieving you have when somebody comes and goes in reality, when you're nursing someone like this. And in order to have something to say to the psychologist, I had to write down what was happening to me. So I, I kept a journal. And a few years later, when I read it, I realized that this was very raw, very strong writing. You know, I'm a writer by profession, and I realized that it was quite strong writing. And I thought, what can I do with this? And at this time I was, as you say, trying to make sense, not of suffering, but I was trying to make sense of the theology or what I'd been taught about the nature of the relationship between God and humankind. And I really lost all my faith. And I was trying to make sense of suffering in the light of my rather traditional Christian upbringing. This is a show about hilarious satire, pragmatism, received ideas, and what it means to love. My name is Rebecca de Saint-Ange, and I've just published my memoir, One Yellow Door, a memoir of love and loss, faith and infidelity. And it traces the last two years of my husband's life. I nursed him for 10 years with dementia. And it looked at those last two years while I tried to keep our marriage together and to keep myself alive. And in doing that, I I had a lover, another relationship in the last years of his life. And so the book traces the complex ethics and dilemmas that I faced having made that decision and how I squared this really with my traditional Christian faith. So I'm just going to read um, a short passage from my journal. 
1995, the 3rd of March. I need help. have been passing through an extremely negative and destructive stage these past four months, unable to lift Jack out of his depressions and struggling with my own. People keep saying I'll be given the strength to cope, but I'm sick of coping. I don't want to cope anymore. I want to spit out of my mouth all the hours and days and weeks and years of coping. I've been coping for nearly nine years. Nearly all of my 40s, gone. Now I want to lash out. Part of me wants us both to die. And yet it's almost frightening how much I want to survive. The worst thing is, I've been wanting to push Jack away. I recoil from him at times. I've withdrawn my affection and he feels it. And I'm full of self-pity, triggered by my relationship with Nicholas, I expect, because he just highlights my own needs which cannot be met. But I, I hate being like this. I want to be loving. Oh, my lover, how do I mean, maintain the integrity of our relationship? Once, when you touched me, I came alive. Now I scream silently, loudly, keep away, keep away, you are destroying me. Keep away, my love, my life, you are killing me. And your heart cries out to me, why am I so distant? Why am I keeping you away? Why can you not stroke me as you have always stroked me and kiss my mouth? Because I cannot bear it. Because I have no more to give. I cannot bear you near me, you who are all of my life. Can you describe meeting Jack for the first time? What was he like? Well, I met him when he was running a, a workshop in prayer. And at that time, I wasn't at all sure if I believed in God at all. But... Um, I was in a rather difficult phase in my life and trying to find some sort of inner stability. So I thought, well, I might as well go along and give it a go and, and see if God is there. And actually, um, there he was, Jack, not a bit like God. He had a shock of white hair and this extraordinary electric vitality. Somebody once said to me that standing next to Jack was like standing next to a live wire. And he had this wonderful sense of humor and a sort of, he was grounded and yet, he had this wonderful vision of what, what life could be like. He was extraordinary. And I know it sounds really weird. I'd never met him before. I looked at him standing up there, and I just recognized him. I, it wasn't that I fell in love with him. I just recognized him. I knew that we were part of the same whole. It, it was as strong and strange as that. And I never actually lost that sense of our being part of one unit, not, not until the day he died. I was getting a divorce at the time so the church wouldn't allow clergymen he was a clergyman to to marry divorced women but we went to see the bishop because i just couldn't believe that this relationship could be wrong and jack couldn't believe it could be right <laughs> because his vocation came first so we went to the bishop under whose authority he was and and the bishop said you know i just see something special in your relationship and i give you permission to meet and two years later the church of england changed its laws and uh, jack and i were able to marry now, you travelled to Zimbabwe and that's when you got an indication that something had gone wrong. Can you talk me through that and what it was like to maybe question the man who was at the centre of your world to question that there was something troubling him or something was wrong? First of all, funnily enough, I didn't notice it first, but he'd always been a man very much ahead of his time. But I noticed that we'd gone to help with the work of reconciliation in a, in a church which had both black and white congregation. This was just after the War of Independence in Zimbabwe. And um, I noticed that his ideas were, were old hat. He wasn't coming up with anything new. 
And I thought, well, you know, maybe it's just because he's in a new country and he doesn't have to think of anything new. But then I noticed that he was having trouble with his words. And then I noticed that he was losing his laughter. And then having always been very gregarious, he didn't want to see people anymore. And he was getting more and more withdrawn. And I thought, well, you know, maybe he's just tired or something. And then one day I found him standing on the pavement in the middle of Harare with the traffic roaring by. And he was in a terrible state, terribly anxious and distressed. And he said, I don't know how to cross the road. What do I do? How, how do I cross the road? And that's when I knew that something serious was going wrong. I rang my brother, who, who was a doctor, and I just said, look, this has happened. What do I do? And my, my brother said, look, just come home. So, you know, coming home from an African country is difficult, lots of red tape. And I think I just moved into sort of um, operation mode and I just did all the practicalities, which were quite complicated, and extracted us from our life just to get us home. I just thought, you know, I knew he wasn't breakdown material, but I never thought it was going to be something as devastating as it was. I just thought, let's get home, let's get some medical attention. So I was just very practical at that stage, I think. Now, Jack was later diagnosed with Lewy body disease. Can you explain to listeners what Lewy body disease is? I know it's a type of dementia, but it's a form of Parkinson's, isn't it? No, it's often misdiagnosed as Parkinson's because it has Parkinsonian symptoms like a tremor and your cognitive responses to begin with slow down like they do in Parkinson's. And it's actually the most second most common form of dementia, but it's still very frequently misdiagnosed. Uh, Jack was one of the first people in the country to be diagnosed with this, and it's different from Alzheimer's, and it's hard to explain, but the person comes in and out of dementia. So Jack could have been sometimes seemed quite normal, and then he would have been almost catatonic, sitting on the sofa as though he was in another world. I found him once reading the paper, moving his head from left to right, because he knew that somehow you had to move your head from left to right, but clearly he he wasn't actually reading. He didn't know how to read. And then he'd almost come back, you know, maybe two days, maybe a month later, and just seen the same old Jack. Unlike um, forms of Alzheimer's, the person never completely disappears. So he was always Jack. He always knew that I was there, even though he might spend hours in a day or days in a week or weeks in a month unable to communicate. Rebecca, how difficult was it to move into the role of being a full-time carer? Because you had been writing, you had been a journalist, you'd done lots of different things and you were very spread out in the community, lots of different vibrant friends. So how difficult was it to set up a routine of being a full-time carer? Well, first of all, I have to say I really, really hate the term carer. (laughs) And people use it all the time. I was his wife. And it was not difficult at all because you just go on loving. And, of course, these diseases progress very slowly. So um, you just take each day at a time. And with Louis body dementia, there are moments when he would lose consciousness completely and fall and not be able to walk or do really bizarre things. You just take them at a day at a time. And it's just all part of your loving. And I was so, this man was so precious to me. I just poured myself into him and I just didn't think of myself as a carer. I was just I was just his wife and I suppose for the first six years at least we still thought it was a form of Parkinson's and somehow, you know, new drugs would come out and we'd be able to control it eventually. So I never thought of myself as a carer in that sense. I was just, just with him. It must have been a very lonely experience. I think and I suppose this is where the parallel relationship came in. What you experience and others will tell you this is that when you've communicated so intimately with someone, 
the terrible thing is you become disconnected. Their dementia disconnects them from everybody else and from you. And so when you're used to sharing everything, and we, we shared our life and our feelings, there was nothing I couldn't tell him. You know, he would know my, my thoughts even before I spoke them. That was the loneliness that the person that I had, that I communicated with, I was disconnected from because of his illness. That was the loneliness. Did you ever feel let down by life during all of this? I imagine you must have had moments of frustration and lots of anguish. So how did you balance your needs and keep it all going? I didn't ever feel let down. I mean, suffering is a part of human existence. And I never felt that we shouldn't suffer. I remember asking Jack, who was the most stunning man. I was terribly cross one day. I got terribly cross with God, as you can imagine. And I remember rather childishly saying to Jack when I found him on the floor, covered with his own excrement, because I'd been out and he couldn't manage. I said, Jack, why should you suffer so much? And he looked at me and said, why should I not? That pierced my heart. Do you think grief is the price of love, Rebecca? Oh, of course. And it's a strange thing, isn't it? I've only just thought of this now you're talking to me, but love also has a loneliness in it, doesn't it? Because you know at some stage either you or they are going to depart. But I suppose for both of us, you know, we did, we did have a strong faith and um, I, did ha- I did feel a presence helping me and I think that, that sustained us hugely. Jack didn't feel that. That's what I was angry about. Yes, you asked me. I was angry about Jack lost all sense of God, you know, and he'd been a clergyman all his life. And um, that made me angry that something could happen so that a human being at that very hour of the most desperate need should have no sense of divine comfort. I really thought, actually, God had to read to think a few things. <laughs> now, One Yellow Door details also your relationship with Nick. He was living in your village and he wasn't a man that you naturally found very charming or that you could have possibly conceived have starting a relationship with. It was very unexpected. Can you describe all of that and tell me about it? Yes, well, it's a strange thing. Um, we met at, at a meeting, a committee meeting. We were running something in the street. And this little rather small man, I, I, I described him thinking he was rather sort of small and brown, sort of made a beeline for me and started chatting to me. And I was completely uninterested in it at all. I had no eyes for anyone but Jack. This was towards the last two years of Jack's life. So, um, you know, I just not in my thoughts at all, not part of anything that I needed or wanted as far as I as were. But he, he just took to me, and he was, I describe him a bit like a wasp around a honeypot. He just wouldn't leave me alone, really. And then I found he was quite interesting, and he was quite funny, and we went out to have a lunch to discuss something somewhere, and I, I had this extraordinary sort of magnetic feeling that I wanted to take his hand. And, and I, I was horrified, absolutely horrified. I thought, what on earth's happening to me? But slowly, I think what happened was that the friendship made me realize when I was hit with him, you see, I could come alive again. And I was laughing again. I didn't have to be in control. So if we met to discuss something, we were running a street party, and then we went for a walk, or he said, let's just have a drink in a pub or something. That's as if I could get someone to sit with Jack. Suddenly, it wasn't me making all the decisions, and I... I suddenly came alive again because I think what happens when the person you're living with is dying inside their body is as they die, you die. As your dear one's life gets narrower and narrower, your life gets narrower and narrower because all your energy is used in 
in, in just nursing them and washing them and cooking for them and dealing with dramas and dealing with nurses and all the rest of it. And suddenly I was with somebody and I was a, a person again. And there was someone to talk to about everything. And that's how slowly this relationship, which utterly took me by surprise, began to develop into something else. Would you describe meeting Nicholas as a gift almost in your life? And possibly within all of that, he represented survival. Oh, without any doubt. And now, you know, it's 20 years since Jack died, but I I look at Nick, I'm not in touch with him now, but I look at him now as an absolute gift in my life, without any shadow of a doubt. He helped me to keep sane, and he helped me to keep me alive. I really wasn't too keen on being alive by this stage. Well, I was, and I wasn't. And... um, My friendship with him didn't for one moment diminish my love for Jack. On the contrary, it gave me the emotional strength to go on giving and giving. Towards the end of Jack's life, I mean, Nick and I didn't meet very often. I mean, I think in the two years we only met 20 times. I mean, sometimes it might have been for two days if I was on respite relief, sometimes just for an hour or two. So it wasn't, but his presence in the background um, was there and he would phone me. So his presence in the background gave me a strength. It was like arms beneath me in the darkness, holding me. And he was a gift, absolutely. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm deeply grateful for that. Now, it took you uh, a couple of years before you decided to write this memoir, and it's unbelievably moving. It's very raw in parts. It's incredibly courageous, and um, it was a joy to read. Can I ask you, was it therapeutic, or for what reason... Did you write the memoir? Did it help you understand the past or did it help you look at maybe how we learn from suffering? What was your rationale for writing it? That's hard. I actually began to write it, well, about six years after his death. I had kept a journal during the last 18 months because I'd I'd sought um, help from a psychologist to help me with the very peculiar sort of grieving you have when somebody comes and goes in reality, when you're nursing someone like this. And in order to have something to say to the psychologist, I had to write down what was happening to me. So I I kept a journal. And a few years later, when I read it, I realized that this was very raw, very strong writing. You know, I'm a writer by profession, and I realized that it was quite strong writing. And I thought, what can I do with this? And at this time, I was, as you say, trying to make sense, not of suffering, but I was trying to make sense of the theology or what I'd been taught about the nature of the relationship between God and humankind, and I'd really lost all my faith. And I was trying to make sense of suffering in the light of my rather traditional Christian upbringing. And so I think the book was an exploration of that, as well as trying to have the pleasure, really, of writing about Jack. To be truthful, I did it because I wanted to write, but it didn't occur to me ever that anyone would want to publish it or read it. So that bit was a surprise. But I did hope it would make some sort of sense, because for me, um, the spiritual dimension of life is hugely important, and that's what I wanted to work out. And what have you got clarity on, Rebecca? I know in the in the last uh, chapter, you reflect quite intensely on the nature of what God means to you and what religion and what your faith means. So what do you feel you understand more and what questions are you still asking yourself? Very quickly, I've been actually writing about this today. I think I've really thrown out 
most of the theology I was taught, I've come to understand, and this is, this is an old concept, that God is not out there. You know, he's not some sort of judge looking at us, have we been good or bad or whatever. God lives within us. I read a wonderful man who said, if we are created in God's image, our original state is grace, not sin. And funnily enough, you say what questions I have to, I have to ask. The older I get, the less questions I, I ask, because it's more about being, being in the presence, and um, in the presence we seek. So for me, I think it's been the whole journey of through, they call it the dark night of the soul, don't they, which lots of people go through when you lose, your faith is eroded by doubt. You then often come through to a completely new place. So for me, that has been the wonderful outcome of this period of suffering. And um, that's exciting, and that's something that I'm, I'm writing about now, and I've set up a website called One Yellow Door for people to join in discussions both about the struggles for caring and how you keep hold of yourself in that role and also how you perhaps rethink faith. Rebecca de Santos 
One Yellow Door, a memoir of love and loss, faith and infidelity, is published by Darton Longman and Todd and retails for just under €12 in paperback. It's a compelling read, heartfelt, direct and refreshingly blunt. Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Okay, let's stick with the theme of intensity in the book and meet with one of the greatest writers of multicultural London, Hanif Qureshi. In her introduction to the Faber Modern Classics edition of The Bud of Suburbia, English novelist and essayist Zadie Smith writes, Perversity is a central sensibility of The Bud of Suburbia. It's a book that refuses to toe the party line. In his role as narrator, Karim is rude where you expect piety, fractious where you're counting on peace, and queer where it would have been far easier at the time to play it straight. Even the most innocuous sentences never quite end as you might expect. Qureshi has proved a kind of seer and hugely influential for a generation of writers, me included. Of course, what he gave us most of all was a sense of irresponsibility, of freedom in the smallest things, as well as the biggest. Well, next week, the great Han of Qureshi is coming to Ireland to take part in the 4th Hay Festival Celts from the 23rd to the 26th of June. This week, I call up with Dr Nick Bentley from Keele University in Staffordshire to discuss the pleasures of a classic Qureshi. My name is uh, Nick Bentley. I'm a, a lecturer at uh, Keele University in the UK. My expertise, and I teach on uh, post-war and contemporary British fiction. 
Nick, I'm going to throw you a quote from Hanif Qureshi and I'd be interested to hear what you make of it. Okay. He once said to a journalist, a writer should be a terrorist and not a masseur. Do you think that's a fair enough point? I think that that describes his uh, work in, in, in an interesting way, that he's trying to be provocative and trying to talk about issues and subject matter which are contentious, which challenge the reader, which... Um, challenge uh, aspects of society, aspects of you know, general thinking, whether that be uh, in, in relation to, to race and ethnicity or in, in relation to sexuality. So, yeah, I think he's certainly a writer who wants to challenge the reader, uh, alongside, of course, producing often very comic um, storylines and very engaged uh, characters. Now, I was interested to read that he started off life as a pornographic writer or, or a writer of pornographic fiction. And I find that very interesting because how he writes sex, well, he doesn't um, he doesn't mess around at all. And I think he's uh, pretty good at it, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think his early writing was he was just trying to, um, you know, to, to, to become a professional writer. So I think the early stories, the, the pornographic stories were not where he was really wanted to, to aim. But certainly he does write sex well, I think. Uh, and he's very honest and very open and very direct about his his writing of um, uh, uh, of sexual relationships, whether they be heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, he you know he's very interested in in covering uh, a variety of areas. He established himself as a screenwriter before he established himself as a, as a novelist, an author. A lot of people would have been introduced to him through My Beautiful Laundrette, which yeah. was made into an Oscar award winning film with Daniel Day-Lewis. But yeah. it, it did push the boundaries when it looked at themes of identity, race, sexuality and the prejudices that go with it. Absolutely. I mean, I remember the, the TV adaptation in the mid 80s and it was really groundbreaking, I think, in, in all those areas. And it discussion of you know racial tensions of racism uh, but also of, of sexuality during that period uh, you know in the 80s when um, you know it, it was part of a film four season I think which um, and, and Channel 4 did tend to try and push the the boundaries and push the barriers in terms of its subject matter but it was it was definitely um, a groundbreaking piece of work which you know then leads on to uh, you know things like the Buddha of suburbia which um, of course is a novel and gives him a sense to expand some of the themes that that, that were introduced in um, in my beautiful laundrette the Buddha of suburbia I have to say reread it there a couple of weeks ago it's yeah. savagely funny it's brutal yes, yeah. it's ironic it's vicious yeah. but he's bang on when it comes to issues of cultural politics and identity and how he writes the idea of what it is to be English or not and who fits in or not. It's inspired, but it's, 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 it's dark also, though, isn't it? It's very, very dark. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, in one sense, it's, it's, it's in a very old tradition of, of you know, British literature in a way. It's, it's, a, it's a social condition or a condition of England novel, um, uh, social commentary, social satire. Uh, but I think, you know, in interviews said he wanted to tell stories of people who've been excluded from that tradition uh, in terms of racial identity, perhaps even in, in terms of sexuality as well. And yeah, I mean, he's very honest writer, a very realist writer. Uh, he wants to, to show 
to British society some of its darker sides, some of its darker elements, and give give voice to that. You know, those areas of life that are often hidden away. He wrote it very much in, as an ironic novel. Do you think that oh, it can only be read as that? Because I know when it was published, people took great exemption to how he presented Pakistani and Indian communities in 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 the suburbs of London. Yes, I mean, it's a very tricky issue. In fact, the novel itself deals with this point, doesn't it? I, I, I remember when, when Karim goes to uh, work with the theatre company and he's asked to develop short uh, acting pieces. He takes for his inspiration, firstly, his uncle Anwar and then his, uh, his, his cousin's uh, husband, uh, Chungas. He takes those two people as characters, but then gets criticised for using them uh, as, as kind of stereotypes almost. It's almost as if they, the way he constructs the characters reflect back some of the very stereotypes that perhaps are, are there in dominant culture. So it's a very fine line, isn't it, that he's, he's treading between trying to tell authentic stories, but then falling back into the very trap of, of, of producing those recognised stereotypes. It, it, it is a difficult line that he's trying to tread. But that type of acerbic vision is not everybody's cup of tea. And certainly no. when you're looking at issues of race and identity and the sexual politics within that, is there an argument there is an onus on the writer to, de- to use some degree of uh, sensitivity, political sensitivity when dealing with these types of topics? Well, I guess so. Of course, I, you know, that always has to be part of the, you know, of the, of the aim of the writer. But again, I think with, in Carisi's case, I think a kind of honesty of writing overrides those, some of those sensitivities sometimes. And I mean, you know, one of, one of the, the, the big aspects of the text, of course, is to represent racism in, in, in British society at very different levels. I mean, you get the very obvious forms of racism uh, when, um, you know, Kareem goes and, uh, and visits his girlfriend or goes to the house where his girlfriend lives and, and, and he suffers racial abuse from her father. But then also those kind of more subtle forms of racism that he encounters when he moves into those theatre 